Hi, this is your host, Keisha Chiapanelli. I am a human rights attorney, and I'm here today with Augustine Colebrook, midwife. And I'm a maternal child health investigator and a midwife, and we run the podcast Help for Mothers, which stands for Health, Education, Love, and Protection. That's right. And we have, as our guest today, Hermine Hayes-Klein. She is a human rights attorney in Oregon, fighting the... Oregon medical monopoly that seeks to really eliminate midwifery and so far is 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 plugging right along and Hermine is working really hard to fight the good fight. We also have Becca Meek and she is a midwife. She is now practicing functional medicine though. She once was the owner of a very uh, successful birth center in Oregon and was, I guess I'd say a, a colleague of yours, right, Augustine, at some point? Yeah, we were colleagues. We both owned birth centers at the same time. And then we both lost birth centers at the same time because of this really aggressive, multi-pronged attack on midwives, community-based birth, um, birth centers in Oregon. So I'm so excited to welcome our two guests. Welcome. Becca, do you want to give an intro? Where are you in the world? So Becca Meek, I'm in Klamath Falls still. They didn't run me out yet. I decided to let my certified nurse midwife license go when it was due for renewal and went ahead and got my women's health nurse practitioner license in order to continue to care for women. I no longer run a birth center, but I am working for a functional medicine clinic and I, I just love doing the functional medicine care of women. That's awesome. And so you've, you're using your skills, but you're no longer running a birth center. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we are going to explore is the why neither of us are running birth centers in Oregon. But first, I want to bring in our next guest. It's so exciting to include and welcome the indomitable and incomparable Hermine Hayes-Klein. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, Hermine. Thank you so much, uh, Augustine. I'm grateful to be here on your podcast with Keisha and uh, excited to discuss these issues today. Yeah, thank you. So Hermine is an exceptional human rights lawyer in Oregon and has had an, a really diverse and broad and beautiful career. And we're really excited to learn from her today. And she is, among many things, a friend to midwives in a way that few are. I know, Keisha, you and Hermine have worked together in the past. Isn't she just exceptional? She is. And I think it's more yeah. like Hermine educating me than anything yes. else and me yeah. learning from her uh, wealth of knowledge. Thank you, Keisha. Thank you, guys. It's a, it's a privilege to be here and we're going to have a, have a fun time. Yeah, yeah, really. It is. It's a privilege for me to sit in this circle with you. I so agree. I guess the first thing to sort of say is I used to be a midwife in Oregon and I practiced in Oregon for cumulatively about 12 years. 10 years of that was in Southern Oregon. Becca was in Klamath Falls. I was in Medford. It's about an hour and a half over a mountain range separated us. And we served two small communities that are fairly landlocked. They don't have very, very close 
neighbors. The biggest town away would be San Francisco, about five hours to the south, and then, you know, Portland, Oregon, five hours to the north. So it was a, a real rural region, but we, we both practiced in two fairly functional cities. And we both opened birth centers. My birth centers opened in 2010, 11, and 13. And Becca, what year did you open? 2014. 14, yeah. So we were really similar time frame and we're collegial colleagues passing things back and forth. I think I gave you my policy and procedure manual as a guide one time. And, you know, we would talk about different things. And we are both very, very passionate, very skilled. I happen to be a CPM. Becky happens to be a CNM. But our policies, our philosophies, I think are very aligned. Wouldn't you say, Becky? I mean, over the years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we both believe in the sovereignty of choice. We believe in in choice in general, that people should have options. And we believe that the community was a really safe place for lots of low-risk moms. And so we both created these resources. Certainly, home birth is a, a loved and traditional option, but some folks actually can't birth at home. They, they don't have a home they feel comfortable in. Um, they have so many people that live with them that it's not possible or, or on and on, in which, in which case they do need a facility, but they don't necessarily need a high-tech facility, a high-tech hospital facility. And so this is where a community-based birth center comes in. It's just such a beautiful option. I know you had a lovely space there. Mm-hmm. I had, I think, a lovely space. I ended up having a couple facilities and they're always nicely decorated and comfy and homey and people feel really at ease when they come to a birth center. And our birth centers were busy. We had a lot of people interested in this. Close to the end before I closed, you know, we were doing over 100 births a year and we were doing in our region 20% of the hospital's volume across the street. And in total, a hospital home everywhere, we were doing 5.9% of the births in my region before I closed. So a real bumping practice in a lot of demand. And I had excellent outcomes. I know, Becca, you had excellent outcomes as well. So in other words, our businesses didn't fail because of patient complaint or because of you know poor practices or, or bad outcomes. And yet, both of us are, were forced out of business. And so that's kind of what I want to explore with you today that we have, and yours and I were, were only two of, I think, four birth centers that closed around that same time in Oregon. And we are just symptoms of a bigger problem. And so what I kind of like to do today is name this systemic problem. I think it's maybe an unpopular mainstream comment, but this is essentially, we are symptoms of a birth monopoly, a system that pushes out anyone but mainstream players. And so I'm wondering, would you tell a little bit of your story, Becca? Like, why why did you close? Like, what happened? Well, one of the reasons that I opened in the first place is because I was a labor and delivery nurse working in a hospital-based, what they called birth center, um, hospital L&D unit. And I just felt that, you know, like we, we had mentioned earlier, like choice was not really given to women. And I felt like I was being a part of a, a system that I didn't really believe in anymore. And so when I decided to open my birth center, it really, it wasn't received well by the medical community right off the bat. Really early on, you know, from the very first transfer into the hospital, I, I was met with opposition and, and just a, a community that wanted to find something wrong with what I was doing a medical community. 
after multiple, multiple complaints, I, I mean, I think I counted up 18 complaints to my state board over the course of about four years that were driven by healthcare providers and not by patients. It, the burden became, you know, really, really heavy. And really, there weren't any cases that, that were received and investigated and led to any kind of disciplinary action. And so it wasn't that, you know, the state perceived me as being unsafe or a risky provider at that point. But the, the problem existed that it just wasn't a good working relationship with the hospital. And, and that put women at risk, in my opinion. So you know, I reached out multiple times to try to have a little bit better system for transfer, better communication, you know, any, any way that we can make this transition for the woman and for everybody a lot smoother. And it was never received well. And so, so really what led the, to the demise of my birth center was that I started just receiving more vague complaints. And the more vague the complaint was, it was almost like it gave my state board a little bit more power to find something that they weren't in line with, that they didn't agree with what I was doing. So it was, it was just an accumulation of, of a lot of heartache on my part and feeling incapable of, of you know, fighting the good fight and continuing to do it and alone because I was the only midwife in my birth center. And so then at a certain point, the state board decided that nurse midwives in Oregon shouldn't be practicing primary care. And in my practice, that was the majority of what I was doing. I had a, a very, very busy primary care for women practice. And the birth center was just in addition to what I was doing on the primary care side. And so they actually did say that nurse midwives would not be doing primary care in the state anymore. They drafted a rule and then, and then I was actually reprimanded on my license for doing primary care for women, which I'd been doing for four years. So at that point, you know, that was one of the sustaining parts of my birth center because although, you know, you were doing about a hundred births a year in Medford, which is uh, a lot bigger than Klamath, I was still doing a fairly decent percentage of the births in our area, which I believe is right, right around 9% at the end there. It was still only, you know, 35 births a, a year. So it just wasn't sustainable to do only the birth center. And so without being able to have that primary care component, I had to make the terrible decision, uh, not terrible, but heartbreaking decision to close my birth center. Yeah. And, and 18, 18 complaints is, is, makes you potentially the most investigated CNM in Oregon. <laughs> Probably. It's pretty significant. They know um, me well. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I fielded 39 investigations oh, um, over four and a half years, and I'm definitely the most investigated CPM in Oregon, LM. And if I can and just interject, a, yeah, just, please. What, what do you have in common? What makes Becca different from other CNMs in Oregon, although she's not the only one who offers these services? It's your support for women's choice to give for vaginal birth after cesarean section outside the hospital. Yeah, part of it. We that's both really do the, believe in that. That's yeah. the thing that yep. um, put a um, target on your back. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm, I, obviously, before we move on from that first yeah. part of what Becca just described, I would just like to you know just clarify an aspect. There's sort of two mechanisms by which the two of you were shut down, and midwives in the state of Oregon are shut down, and maybe other places too. Yes, other places too. The sort of through refusal to pay for your services, through, you know, sort of obstruction of fair coverage, 
like you said at the beginning of the podcast, there's a high demand for your services. Both of your birth centers were highly successful and in demand. And a lot of, and people wanted to go there. You had as many clients as you wanted from your birth center perspective. And you would have had more, but for, you know, if, the, if everybody knew they could have the choice to give birth at a birth center with a midwife covered in a straightforward way by their insurance. But prior to 2015, there was sort of, it was the process was still discriminatory. There was still not straightforward coverage, but it was navigable to some extent. And women could, even women on Medicaid, which we'll circle back to, that's a large proportion of both of the population, the, serv- the populations that both of you served could access and get some coverage for your services. It was still not enough coverage to really make your work sustainable. But that in 2015, OH, the Oregon Health Authority, which administers Medicaid funds, adopted a set of internal policies to that were much more discriminatory toward out-of-hospital birth services. And one aspect of that, there's multiple aspects which we can discuss, but one aspect of that is that people on Medicaid in Oregon, their coverage comes through sort of regional-based coordinated care organizations that are their sort of primary home for their healthcare services. Oregon Health Plan you know, as a federal Medicaid distributor, it's supposed to make sure that those CCOs provide the full range of licensed healthcare services within that state to network adequacy, that they're making sure that those are in fact available for Medicaid recipients and that within these CCOs. And But in fact, Oregon didn't do that. The CCOs have discriminatorily excluded out-of-hospital birth providers, you know, midwife-owned and midwife-led birth centers. They will contract with and allow into their networks um, MD, a few MD-owned birth centers. There's not a lot of those, but they have different ways of practicing than midwife-led birth centers, which are what some, you know, many families in Oregon want to access. Part of Becca's story involved, you know, you know, so, so one is financial, right? So you just can't get paid and those women can't come to you. So that's sort of, that's a monopoly, right? Those women can't access the service that they want to provide. And the state is saying, no, you can literally, we will not pay for your birth center birth. We will pay for your hospital birth. <laughs> um, and, and then the other is through complaints, that you have to deal with, filed against your license types, frivolous discriminatory complaints, and the, and the state board is failing to really openly acknowledge and recognize patterns of discriminatory complaints when they're coming. And those come from two primary sources, hostile hospital providers, or you know competitors, you could say, or those who receive your transfers and are themselves just like, out of hospital birth? Why would you do that? They're, they're just ignorant and biased uh, regarding this other well, actually, I mean, and their hospital I, I, service. Yeah, and I want to interject. There's there's another piece of the politics in this piece that I'm aware of. I, I think you're aware of this too. In 2006, at the Oregon ACOG conference held in Sun River, the then president of ACOG, Oregon chapter, Stella Datsa, passed out the form letter from the board of midwifery on how to report on midwives and charged the audience of OBs with the need to protect the public and report on as many midwives as possible. So you can look at the reports of midwives in Oregon. Yeah. So in Oregon, you can look at the rate of reports per year. And when it gets to 2007, the year, you know, 2006, 2007, after that, conference, our rate of reports went up and up and up. And so did the cost of our license to pay for the increased administrative costs of reporting and investigating midwives. That's unbelievable. I had no idea. 
And I, I think basically yeah, I the, have the, the letter that was passed out at that 2006 conference. And, yeah. and, you know, really at that point, the CPMs, that's when the board should have implemented a, a mechanism to guard against those politics. Mm -hmm. And as we know, those politics are couched in a long history of bias and of discrimination against midwifery on the part of medicine, such that there was no midwifery for, you know, for 50 years yeah. or more. And midwives had to reinvent midwifery and have been doing since the 1970s. And a way that we could introduce this show is to say, you know, Americans think that Oregon is a place where you can give birth outside the hospital. <laughs> Americans think Oregon is a place where midwives are loved and successful and able to practice. But in fact, no, Oregon is a place where Oregonians love midwives <laughs> and yes. have fought by hook or by crook to have midwives yes. made legal. Yeah. But the and to write good and reasonable laws that protect their ability to practice and offer services like vaginal birth after cesarean at a birth center. But yeah. the state administrators of bodies like Oregon Medicaid and the licensing board sometimes, they administer the laws in a way that make it so that you're always facing this uphill battle against discrimination. And if I could just close the point on Becca, what I want to clarify regarding, you know, the thing that shut her birth center down is that so there's two primary sources of complaints, hostile providers and state administrators. They can both file complaints against your, your license saying, we think you're negligent. And, and what state administrators in Oregon, what happens is a midwife looks for coverage for, keeping it real over here during COVID-19, um, a midwife <laughs> looks for coverage for her services. She looks for coverage from OHP. OHP reviews the, the client files and then they say, or some administrator looks at, well, will we or won't we grant coverage to, the, to this, you know, out of hospital birth? And then they say, oh, looking at this file, we don't like the way this midwife is practicing. Even though she's doing nothing wrong, she's practicing within scope. But in turn, according to our judgment, we're not sure that even though this is a legal birth, that this woman should be allowed to have this legal birth. And so they file a complaint against the midwife. So that's another source of complaints, which gets me to my point oh, yeah. that for Becca, if you track the complaints over a timeline that, that Becca had to deal with, they either would occur right after a transfer from some hostile doctor, or they would occur when she was being a squeaky wheel regarding the rights of out-of-hospital birth providers to coverage for Medicaid funds. And the first moment at which that happened was when she tried to be a reasonable, very pleasant, squeaky wheel about getting in, in contract with her local coordinated care organization, which didn't have any freestanding birth centers in that work, and so that she could offer services through the CCO. And, and she faced all kinds of discriminatory nonsense and refusal to bring her in. That, in but instead, and then Oregon Health Authority, which oversees the CCO, instead of, you know, did, did not force the CCO to take her in or you in or anybody else. And that's one of the reasons why Becca had to, couldn't just be a birth center, right? She also yeah. did what she was allowed to do under her CNM license, which was offer primary care services. And so she employed other people. She had this beautiful space. So she was able to use it for a birth center and also provide primary care, which is covered so that she would be able to serve and be sustainable. The thing that shut Becca's birth center down, because all these complaints didn't add up to anything. They couldn't find her negligent because she wasn't negligent. <laughs> so what shut her down was that they changed the rule. They made a new rule, a clarifying rule uh, the ex to the existing scope of practice for CNMs that said, just so it's clear, CNMs in Oregon can't do primary care. Even though they can do it in other states, we've just decided suddenly that CNMs like Becca Meek can't do, and you know what, we're going to reprimand her forever having done it because I guess she didn't know our secret rule that we hadn't written. <laughs> and, and, and Becca, from now on, you cannot do primary care. 
And because of that, she couldn't do primary care anymore and she couldn't get paid for her birth center. And between those two things, she couldn't keep her birth center open. So that's really the thing that shut her down. It wasn't just, oh, there was a rule clarification. There was a special rule clarification that helped to shut Becca Meek's birth center down. Hermine, are CCOs unique to Oregon? I mean, is this something, who are the, and who, and who are these haters? Like who, who is there? I have to like see mm -hmm. the face. Yeah, I know what you mean. I can answer those questions. I mean, the, the answer to the first question is, I don't know. I'm not a national Medicaid expert. I know that, that Oregon created the, the previously called MCO and Augustine probably knows far more about this than I do now called CCO plan for for how it administers Medicaid, federal Medicaid funds within Oregon, <clears throat> and the CCOs is, is how it does it. That's what Medicare I was wondering. organizations became coordinated care right. organizations, and they're a That's way it. to administer the distribution of funds that allow the state to give a chunk to a region, and then that CCO and MCO is responsible for dispersing among that region because when states are so broad, the administration at the state level gets cumbersome and slow. And so essentially they, they piece it out. And what that CCO is charged with is not only dispersing funds, but determining who is allowed to get those funds. And so while the Medicaid as a state at Oregon state level said, we pay LDMs, we pay licensed direct entry midwives, at the regional level, those CCOs and previously the MCOs before them, before the Obamacare 2010 change, which didn't come to Oregon until 2013, but that change, those state, those regional level ones w did not include at their own discretion. There was, there was one midwife I know that was included in them. And so we argued very strongly. I mean, I think I went on every news channel I could that, that that was discrimination, that actually you're violating a state law because the state mandate says we reimburse licensed midwives, but then the regional administer organizations wouldn't even though their mandate was to create these healthcare homes where there weren't a lot of ER visits anymore. People were going to see their primary care and their midwives and all their, everything in the same region from the same organization. We were kind of a perfect healthcare home because like Becca, although I didn't personally offer the primary care, I had staff who offered primary care. So we had, you know, the equivalent of seeing a doctor for anything, you know, if your body was whatever hurting and pediatric visits and lactation and, you know, all these, all these other services were also offered out of my birth center, but we couldn't get into the Medicaid community organization, the CCO. And that kind of discrimination, like Becca experienced, we also experienced an almost impossible way to make appropriate reimbursements. And so in Oregon, as a loophole protector for people that didn't qualify to get into their local CCO, there was the option of what's called an open card. And an open card was a way to administer those sort of free-floating cases of people who moved to Oregon at the last minute, or people who had changed addresses from one county to the other, people who were somehow out of the local county CCO. They were eligible to get Medicaid. And so what the state caught on to very quickly is midwives were counseling their clients of how to be eligible for an open card in order to get paid. And the state obviously didn't love that because the open card had a spot for lots of people and it's, it was a fee for service. So in other words, you provide the service and then you bill exactly what you did and then the state pays you. 
instead of the way the CCOs run, which is a global fee. The state only gives the county so much, and then the county only gives the doctor so much, regardless of what care is rendered. When you sign up and you're a Medicaid agreed provider, you have to accept what they give you. Whereas with the open card, you could bill out all the things that you did. And so for a number of years, Medicaid added midwifery to the roster in 92, I think, it might've been 96. And that little open card exemption window happened from that mid nineties all the way to about the mid 2010s. We were utilizing that system. It was very well known. Moms just had to wait to get on Medicaid. When they got on late, they automatically put into an open card and then midwives got paid. But the state started denying those. And then this, we had this creation of something called HERC, the health education, health, help me, I've lost it, Keisha, health evaluation review committee, <laughs> health evidence, yeah, health evidence <laughs> review committee. Thank you. Um, and the HERC did this crazy thing in the, in Oregon, and it is an Oregon only thing as far as I know. They basically created a whole second set of laws. And this, this happened around the development. Can I explain this part? Yeah, please. Yeah. You're f- intimately familiar with this. <laughs> I am. Yes. So I want to circle back to Keisha's question. Who, who is the discriminator? The discriminator is people who, there's still some opacity to that question, but at the same time, it's administrators within the Oregon Health Authority who have different kinds of power at different moments. You know, they might be called medical director. They might be called policy director. They're often MDs or RNs, definitely MDs when they're setting policy, RNs when they're implementing it. They're not out of hospital. They have no experience without a hospital birth. And they say things like, you know, in my experience, uh, 20 years as a family doctor and hospital ex, uh, I, just had to, I just came to believe that uh, it's just really important to be close to a surgery when a baby's born. Right? So that's a naked discrimina- expression of discrimination. And the bias. Fact is, as an administrator, they don't, it doesn't matter what they think. It's not their job to decide whether home birth should be allowed because that decision has already been made. It's their job to administer the laws in a way that's non-discriminatory. And so at some point in 2015, there was, who knows what, it's not yet clear what happened within Oregon Health Authority that the discrimination level amped up. And so they went from, so previously you had to go on an open card, right? So they, Oregon Health Authority did not do what it should have done, which was say CCOs, MCOs, whatever we want to call you, you have to take in out-of-hospital providers to network adequacy, and you have to pay for those services in a straightforward way. They didn't do that. They said, oh, no, well, out-of-hospital birth is special. It's dangerous. We need to have some protections. So the only way that women, because it was on the open card, um, that Augustine just, where they had to leave their health home and all of their regular providers and, you know, ask for coverage. But, you know, generally, if they were willing to do that, you know what I mean? So, again, with this, with the, back to Monopoly, what the state is doing here is disincentivizing this healthcare option. I always think about the husbands, right, who were like, the, the wife wants the choice and she, like, had to kind of talk her man into it. So he's like, open card? What? Like, the state is signaling that this is a sketchy choice. And so you have to be determined to want, you have to really want it to move past that point. Um, but generally, and, and the midwives were coming from such a scarcity consciousness that they accepted open card. They didn't sue then. They were like, well, we're getting paid. You know, we're getting something. At least we're getting something. We used to get nothing. We used to get paid in chickens. Yeah. And, and yep, you know that story. I was story. just going to say, I didn't, and I, I knew have what MCOs were. I'm sure you have. <laughs> 
You're a midwife. And big jars of weed, you know, that's yep. the Oregon thing. They're like, here awesome. you go. And I'm like, I can't or do honey, or that. honey. Yeah, I got a lot of honey. Chickens, yeah. Mm-hmm. I was just saying, I, I just thought it might be good to clarify, and I'm glad that you did, that the CCOs are basically analogous to an MCO. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And so, meanwhile, but the CCOs haven't been doing any of this coverage, right? So, you get, if, if you're on OHP, OHP sends you to a CCO, but if you're pregnant and you want to give birth at a birth center, you now go on an open card and you apply directly to OHP for coverage, right? So that was already the open card process. In 2015, the Oregon Health Authority decided to develop and implement HERC Health Evidence Review Commission guidelines for out-of-hospital birth coverage. Now, OHA has HERC and then, and to implement a process by which women would have to apply for prior authorization, and they stated that they would decide who was allowed to give birth outside the hospital based on whether they had the risk factors on their HERC list for out-of-hospital birth, okay? What's important to understand is that the HERC list that listed, now here are the clinical factors that exclude you from out-of-hospital birth coverage was much smaller than the regulatory scope of practice that says who's, who's excluded from out-of-hospital birth services for either LDEMs, CNMs, or birth centers. And there's regulations, there's really detailed regulations for all of those things that say, what, what, you know, if a woman has this or that, you can't give her care, you have to transfer her. Birth centers can do vaginal birth after cesarean under the regs that govern their scope of practice. LDEMs can do vaginal birth after three cesareans with a consult, two cesareans with no, con- with no consult, recognizing that women do make that choice, need the support for that choice. And CNMs, it's not really, there's no definition for it, but within, if they work at a birth center, then the birth center regs cover their ability to do a VBAC. Mm-hmm. So both Augustine and Becca had VBAC well within their scope. Herc listed prior cesarean as a factor that for exclusion. Okay. And because uh, the reason I had to interject was because Augustine was like, well, they made this whole other set of laws. But what they actually did was they made internal guidelines and treated them as laws instead of yeah. following the existing laws. Right. And yeah. here's, so I've been bringing lawsuits against OHA, or I brought one lawsuit for three years and they fought really hard. And that's a, it's a long story to avoid accountability on the question of, do they get to do this? I think we will get our day in court on the question of, of do they get to do this? Because in fact, I don't think they get to do this. Under federal law, um, certain maternity services are mandated. You know, pregnant women are the categorically needy and um, state administrators of Medicaid who take federal Medicaid funds have to provide certain enumerated services to the categorically needy pregnant woman. And that includes, since 2010, both hospital and freestanding birth center services with the services provided by licensed provider types, and they specifically says nurse midwives or other providers licensed under state law, and also CNN. So it says hospital, birth centers, including their provider services, you know, everybody licensed, and doctor and CNM. And those are all listed as mandated services, which state Medicaid distributors have to provide. And um, they don't get to substitute one for the other. They don't get to say, we're not giving you the birth center. We'll give you the hospital instead, if the hospital is licensed and under scope. And they have to look to to the state scope of practice. So, so even though OHA might have the authority for different kinds of cancer treatment or other kinds of healthcare issues to make a HERC list of who should have this or not and have a prior authorization process, maternity services is not an area where they get to do this. Instead, they're pretending that they do so that they can 
implement so that they can just exercise bias in and so yeah, that they can say they who's add, allowed and who's not more, allowed and cut off they OHP add more gates for, and more, for thousands of Oregon women. Yeah. So ever since they 2015 really when they said VBAC's yeah. not allowed, that's we've got every like everybody else, we've got a one in three C section rate. Many, yeah. many women have a prior cesarean section. So if you say anybody who has a prior cesarean section doesn't get to go to a out of hospital birth, that's a lot of women. And yeah. the problem is under Oregon law, they are allowed, they do get to, and the providers get to yeah. serve them. But OHP cut off coverage for everybody with Medicaid, therefore making it so that women on Medicaid don't get to access reproductive health services that women who aren't on Medicaid do get to access. And that's also discriminatory. And super to clarify that whole hurt problem. Yeah, that was, that's, you did a brilliant job like usual. Mm -hmm. And so to zoom back out to the systemic problem, we're seeing this in lots and lots of states as midwives try to, try to bill all kinds of insurances. They, there are many, so to paint the picture there, there's say a pregnant person on an insurance that she has coverage for her pregnancy and she wants a community-based birth experience, home, birth center, doesn't matter. CNM, CPM, doesn't really matter. She's going to a licensed, state licensed provider to get her community-based services. And many, many times we're seeing all kinds of mainstream private insurance and Medicaid deny her claim because it's out of network saying we already have in-network services. So they apply for a network gap exception and they say, we can't give your midwife or your facility a network gap exception because we already have facilities in the network. And of course, what they're talking about is hospitals because the system hasn't differentiated the fact that we have two different care models, the midwifery model of care and the obstetric model of care. It's not the system, it's discrimination. They're saying, you don't need a hospital birth. You don't need a little birth experience. You need to go yeah. to the nice, safe hospital. And they're, in, yeah. because they're in fact ignorant of the very, the full spectrum of risks and benefits on either side of the choice between home and hospital. And they're not taking the time to listen to these women about how they are in fact, they, with full knowledge of the risks and benefits, are weighing those risks and benefits and making a choice for a healthcare decision that they have the legal right to make. Yeah, it's really interesting. It kind of goes to that global issue we have right now of, of the state knows best, this yeah. feeling like we're in this bit of this nanny state that we're in. Mm -hmm. And we, we've seen this in, in, a, in maternity care kind of ramp up sooner than is happening in the rest of society. And, and the ones who really pay the price are the families and the moms, the birthing pregnant people who are robbed of choice, who are robbed of sometimes bodily autonomy, because if they can't have a, a VBAC with their midwife in their community, and they have to seek physician services in the hospital, and no physicians will offer VBAC, then essentially they are railroaded into more surgery. That whole process is happening in all states, but it's also particularly painful for the providers on the front line who are trying to hold space for this important choice point. And I know I have suffered as a result of trying to be that protection for midwives, protection for mamas. Becca, I know you've, you've suffered mm -hmm. on this pathway. Yeah. It takes There's quite an emotional toll. Into, oh God, yeah, absolutely. Huge emotional toll. But one other thing I wanted to mention about the CCOs too, and I, I don't know how often this happens in other states, but the CCO in Klamath Falls was actually um, established by the same group of physicians that run, you know, administration of the hospital. So when you talk about healthcare monopolies, 
if you get to decide what providers are covered and which ones aren't, you can funnel state monies back into wherever you want. So that was a big issue that I had in Klamath Falls. And I don't know if that's what you experienced in Medford. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. This is part of the almost, I mean, we could almost use the word corruption because it, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be this way. I mean, mm-hmm. we experienced the same thing. So there were two managed care organizations in my community. One was a nonprofit administered by mainstream medicine. The other was like your experience. It was owned by the physician group that served to benefit from for channeling profit. that money. Yeah, they're yeah. for profit. It's a physician group that's for profit that also owns the insurance company. So of course they don't let anyone else in who could dilute the money source. I mean, it's, exactly. it's really quite disturbing when you unpack it <laughs> fully. Totally. Um, yeah. Do yeah. you recall the reason why they wouldn't give you a contract? Did they give you specifics? Yes. I wasn't one of their approved provider types. Yeah. But yet the, um, federally you are. Federally they mean that you are a provider they'll, t- yeah. they'll pay for, but yet at the state yeah. level, in your county, your county decides that. And that's, I think, completely illegal. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like when the Affordable Care Act came through, it radically changed healthcare and healthcare reimbursement in the United States. But then very shortly afterwards, we had that, I'm going to forget the name now because it's been a long time since I've been lobbying in Oregon, but it's like 6127 or the, the, the rider that chiropractors and midwives, and there was a whole group of providers who lobbied for this amendment to the ACA in and it came through in 2012. And that rider, that amendment mandated reimbursement for birth centers and their licensed providers. And so that came through from the federal label. That was a federal mandate. And yet, like you're saying, not only at the state level, but at the small county level, they were trying to supersede federal mandates mm-hmm. and not reimburse us. Mm-hmm. I was told that I needed to have all the OBGYNs at the hospital agree to take my backup call. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, no. And it's, it's silliness, really, because the hospital already has a system for walk-ins and on-calls. Exactly. exactly. So they just need to stop discriminating, essentially, right. and right. that it would be you fine. Know, yeah, I don't like the, I just don't like the model entirely. I mean, you're talking about an organization that's supposed to implement it's functioning in, in multiple ways. It's like delivery of care, administration, and you have health insurance in the mix. So it sets, it sets people up for an inherent conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. So I think the model is wrong, period. Right. Um, and, and, and I don't, to speak I don't know to that even deeper, the model of the CCOs right now is exactly what, what Augustine said about it's a, it's a global. So if I agree right. to take on five patients, I agree to be paid this much for those five patients. Well, what's my incentive to give good care and bring them back in for the care that they need? If the more care that I provide does not make me more money, it's, it's that you're not being paid for your production of what you produce in that patient and how you, you know, you improve their health. It's actually by keeping them out of your facility that you get more money for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, that's a really good point. But there's so many different models, you know, I like pay-per-fee, I like HMOs, I like having that one doctor that I can go to, you know, and not have to get permission, you know, to find a a specialist. Like, I think there's different ways, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. but, But there's not one way to make more money. 
I mean, well, right. I mean, the MCOs, they're publicly traded stocks. I mean, you can invest in them. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a different model that I don't care for, but we go through these cycles, I think culturally in this country of always looking for the better model, the better thing. And I, I feel like we're digging a hole deeper and deeper. And I don't know if Hermine, what she thinks about this, but you know, in Arkansas, our attorney general briefed the point that women in this state, according to, to her, do not have the right to choose their provider for birth, period. So then what do you do? I, I mean, what's going to be the outcome in a state that clings to that notion? How do you, how do you- I think you keep you know, advocating against bad law. Anytime somebody makes, look, what, what you're dealing with there is cultural bias, you know, on the part of that. And what's, it's extremely discouraging when, you know, female attorneys or who, who consider themselves reproductive rights advocates, perhaps, you know, in other oh, areas, yeah, I'm sure. um, they, do. they are completely unconscious when it comes to the fact that a woman keeps her rights if she chooses to keep the baby, not only if she doesn't choose to keep the baby, um, and that you can trust women to make decisions throughout childbirth, just as you trust them to make decisions about conception and abortion. So, or contraception and abortion. So, but when, when they don't get that, I think what we're all dealing with is the fact that we're going to keep fighting until um, women's rights are recognized. And Keisha and I are lawyers because at the end of the day, even in perhaps in the face of the evidence, we believe in our legal system. We believe in the slow march toward justice and the evolution of the law to, I mean, the law has made a lot of mistakes for a long, long time. People have been, you know, subject to a lot of horrible things under the name of law, right? But at the same time, the law has also done some good things or whatever, or moved in a better direction, but it only ever does so through advocacy, right? So that's why we keep, that's why we try to do what we do. That's why we celebrate the two of you who are busy advocating for moms and midwives. You're an advocate too. Yeah, I have moved into that role. It's true. Um, And this whole show is advocating for moms. In fact, it's called Help for Mothers, Health Education, Love and Protection. And we're kind of hitting all the points today. I want to go back to what Becca was saying, because it's a really important distinction, this idea that, that healthcare providers have switched from healthcare and moved into healthcare administration because that's where the money is. We have incentivized administration over actually direct care. And physicians, if they are thinking about making money, are no longer actually just running a practice or even a group practice that sees the volume, now they have switched to running the insurance companies and administering the payer sources, the flow of money. So we have federal money that comes in to a state to offset their Medicaid program. And then the state has allowed these different for-profit entities to distribute the funds that come federally. So not only are those CCOs, those organizations, privately owned and for-profit, but then they get to set the rate, like who gets the money. So it's, it's a way to kind of channel funds. I was a big fan of the Affordable Care Act, and I was a big fan of moving towards having these medical health care homes until I realized in the midst of being crushed by the plans was that actually they weren't health care homes. They were health care hospitals. We were not seeing this decentralization of care. We were actually creating big box healthcare. So in the same way that the mom and pop stores were being forced out by Targets and Walmarts, the Medicaid 
shift that happened as a result of the Affordable Care Act of 2010 actually closed mom and pop health care. So we are the casualties of what happened in maternity, but actually I got to speak to a pediatrician, a podiatrist, a chiropractor, and there are many, many others who were forced out of business because they didn't have the resources, the reserves to withstand the shift into big box healthcare. And then on the other hand, the the reimbursement rates were bulked, like what Becca was saying, like you actually, it was incentivizing bulk non-personal care. It was incentivizing big box healthcare. So there is no there is no benefit to sitting with someone and understanding their specific needs and actually doing individualized health care. There is no benefit for going above and beyond for a client. And in fact, what Beck and I noticed is there's actually punishment. So it's not just there's no benefit, there's actually significant punishment for those of us who don't tow that big box line where you just create an assembly line and just move people through the system. So the only companies that survive, the only healthcare providers that survive are these really big box, big systemic, system-wide programs. Like I had a pediatrician friend who practiced in my area who had a, a nice small practice and he saw clients three days a week and, you know, had another doc in the area that would take call on weekends. And he had a pretty sweet life actually with the rate of reimbursement change and the speed of reimbursement change that came with Medicaid. Um, he, he couldn't afford to stay open any longer and had to merge with a big corporate pediatric group that had, you know, 12 pediatricians and giant full waiting rooms of sick kids that just get moved through a system being given antibiotics and that's all another thing. Um, and he eventually went out of business. I saw the same thing with a podiatrist. Uh, I happened to have to see a podiatrist at that moment. And I was asking him because I was obsessed with <laughs> Medicaid and all this stuff. And it was like, yeah, same thing. He had to fold and join a big group because they, it's not sustainable when there's no incentivizing actual care. We're just moving numbers through a system as large as possible. And so I always say Oregon's was like at the front of the pendulum. We were like at the front of the pendulum swing with midwifery freedom and rights. And then we were at the front of it with the loss of it too. So for several decades, midwifery was the Mecca was Oregon in the US. And then also now it's maybe one of the scariest and most dangerous places to practice. And birth centers have closed. I counted 11 senior midwives who left the state or retired the year that I was forced out in 2016. And obviously we lost you. We lost lots of other people. It's quite devastating. It was very devastating to me financially, personally, professionally, all of it. Becca, I know you and I both learned how to pivot, make life happen in another way. We're kind of experts for this pandemic because we, <laughs> we played with that word beforehand. But the, but the devastation that you and I both experienced is real. I mean, I know that I took a walk with Hermine in the woods one day in tears at the height of my PTSD experience. And she was so kind to me that I cried on her shoulder in the whole process. And I know she's been a resource for you too, but this kind of professional, I mean, what is the word? It's, it's like a witch hunt. Right? I mean, I actually, exactly what I called it. I think that yeah. I, I hate to like make parallels with, you know, what's really going on in a, in a, you know, much bigger level in our country, but I feel like you know, natural health, midwifery, functional medicine, like we are all under attack right now. 
And I've stopped looking at things as I, I refuse to be a victim. And so I have to see it from a different angle. And what I decided to do was look at it from a spiritual level. And this is a spiritual battle. This is good versus evil. We are doing something that is extremely important for women. It's extremely important for families, the growth of our country in a positive direction, in a positive direction. And, and we're being stopped by a force that I believe is very evil. And so when you look at it from that angle, it changes everything. And you realize, you know what? What I was doing was great. And what those midwives that are doing right now, that is still great. And we've got to find a different way to make this continue to happen for women because we cannot let women lose their, their right to choose. And we can't let people lose their right to go and find a naturopath in order to, you know, to find somebody who their insurance will cover. We have to do something to make a statement. And I think that what's happening right now is people are waking up. They are waking up to the fact that they want their rights. They don't want their rights taken away. And this COVID thing, I think, is helping with that a little bit. But we're seeing how pervasive the evil is in our healthcare system. And it's yeah. time for a big change. And I think that midwifery is one of those ways that we were making change. And we were, we were threatening that status quo. And so, you know, by getting this stuff out there, I think it's really, really powerful because there are, the masses have to understand what it is. Um, yeah. And if we can wake more people up to that fact, and, and really it's not about whether or not they want a home birth or whether or not they want a VBAC or whether or not they want to use a midwife. It's about their right. It is about yeah. And the freedom right. to choose. Yeah. And the freedom to choose that right. Yeah. And that's it's, the same. I mean, that's the same issue with vaccines too, right? It's really not about whether you're pro or anti-vaccine. It's okay. actually that you believe that parents have the right to choose for their own children, that you don't think the state should mandate that care. And this yes. is the same issue. We're actually about freedom of choice. Exactly. Because but it's a, it's a uniquely, it. this is Hermine, if I could interrupt. Yeah. Like, it's a uniquely yeah. American drama to make healthcare choices a, a, a moralistic issue, something that we have to fight for choice. You know, I think something that we need to remember here is that like, what we're dealing with is, culture, is, is cultural bias, deep-rooted cultural bias based on century-old propaganda campaign by the American Medical Association regarding midwifery that you go to the hospital to have your baby and you have your baby with doctors because that's what's safe, right? And, and so you're, I want to circle back to what Augustine said, you know, it used to be a place where people came and now it's a place that shuts midwives down. Mm -hmm. It was a place where people came when midwives were even, were criminals in the other states. It was a place where people came because midwives were allowed to exist in the state of Oregon when they were not allowed to exist in the other states. They were allowed to open birth centers and have them licensed and regulated here before that was even allowed in other states. So that made it better than a place where you're a criminal and if you have to transfer a client, you have to drop her at the ER door and drive away before the police come. But it's, it's still not integration. It's still not a meaningful choice, right? And it doesn't have to be like this. We have to remember that. And there's other nations that just treat it like a healthcare choice so that when I had my two babies in the Netherlands, or that's why I do this work is because I had my babies in 2007 and 2010 in the only industrialized nation that never moved normal birth into the hospital. The Dutch have always had a model that healthy women give birth at home with midwives and they save the doctors and hospitals for backup and they've always had better outcomes in the United States. So they are like a national indictment of the story that you healthy women need to go to you know, the hospital to give birth because things happen so fast during childbirth that you need to be at the hospital. If that was true, Holland would be the land of dead babies and it's not. But what, it, what, it, what it, that, that means is that this is a, normalized, a culturally normalized healthcare choice that is fully covered and integrated. So you really have the choice. It's your choice whether you wanna have your baby at home or in the hospital 
So on the coverage issue, when I moved there, I was seven months pregnant with my first child. And I called a very, the very mainstream healthcare insurance, came through my husband's job and I said, hi, I'm pregnant. And I just moved to the Netherlands. And they said, oh, are you giving birth at home or in the hospital? And I said, well, maybe at home because I'm having a normal pregnancy. And within a week, the health insurance company sent me a box of home birth supplies. And oh yep. Because, every, because why wouldn't they, right? That's how you promote health. You make sure that they have everything they need for the home birth. You send them their supplies, right? And it was fully covered by insurance with no games. Just like in the United States, a hospital birth is fully covered by insurance with no games. All of these games around your out-of-hospital birth are, are unnecessary. Well, we have a number of in-hospital births that also they, they don't cover everything and there's all kinds of insurance issues there too. But, mm. but yes, I agree. For what we kinds have, of things? Oh God. Do you see the recent charge that's been going around viral that, no. that on the line item bill, the woman is charged um, $39 for skin to skin? No, that's, that's an old uh, social media post. And I believe that that would be on a bill, right? But that's, that's, I mean, she's charged. It might be on the bill, but that bill isn't sent to her. Her, the bill is covered by insurance in a straightforward way. She might see the bill if she's not covered, if she doesn't have insurance. But if you're on yeah. OHP, if you're on Blue Cross Blue Shield, I Providence, see what you're saying. Yeah. your services yeah, yeah. are covered. It's covered. Yeah, I see yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, there's no nonsense. There's no, oh, special permission. Right, right. We have to make sure you're saying it's a paradigm. It's accepted. And this is just not culturally accepted. That, yeah, well, and, it makes and we, sense. the thing is, so discrimination is always cultural, right? Discrimination is always yeah. cultural. What changes it? Lawsuits. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's what the Midwest of Oregon haven't so done enough you, of. And you're, but you're in the midst of one now, uh, right? In Oregon, yes, I'm now rep representing another mother, a mother appealing a denial of coverage for a VBAC during COVID-19. She's a perfectly healthy candidate for a VBAC at the birth center. She's perfectly within scope of all of her providers. Like many other women, she wants to give birth at a birth center because that she had her first two babies at the hospital, but now she and her partner feel like this is the safest choice for them. And uh, uh, OHP denied coverage. So we are going to challenge that, and with any luck, we will get a hearing on whether um, federal law applies in the way that I hope it does. Okay. That I believe it does. Yeah. Well, we, we fingers crossed for that. Let's let's just move now to talk a little bit. Um, I want to bring in Hermine and Keisha in a much bigger way. What what are the solutions to solving this? I mean, lawsuits is what you say, but let's say that we're talking to this audience of mamas and maybe some lawyers and policymakers and providers and say, what can they do? Like what, what can we do to move the needle on this problem, the systemic problem nationally? I can answer first. Um, I think that moms, if you're, if, you, if some of your listeners are parents, they can ask their midwives, do you need any support? Is there a way I can support you? Is there something, are there ways challenges to your ability to practice because midwives don't want to volunteer this stuff. Women don't know what midwives go through, right? Like they just think they're going in for their nice birth center birth. Oh, I loved that birth center. Oh my God, I loved it. They have no idea about the struggle that their midwives go th went through around that birth, around the transfer, around the coverage every day, how they're hanging on by a thread, what they're going through. And so, you know, I think you start by asking your midwives because your midwife, and then, and so then when the question is, what can, you know, and stand up for your rights in every way that you can. And your midwives, you know, whether that's sending, whether you can figure that out or you need to ask your midwife what that looks like. And then for the midwives, it's, um, I mean, look, you and I, we all know the scarcity issues that midwives deal with, right? And the resource problems. Fundamentally, what the midwives do need to do is to demand integration, 
demand integration. So everything that looks like discrimination is. <laughs> Every single time you make a transfer and somebody is hostile toward y'all, file a complaint against their license because they endangered that mother by not communicating with you in a respectful way or whatever it was that happened. Unintegrated transfers kill. I work on those cases. And, but what happens, as we all know, is that those hostile providers that denied care or gave different kind of care to a woman for the reason that she dared to start care with a midwife, they file a complaint on the midwife. And now the midwife's in the defensive. Fine, maybe they will. But I would also like it if the midwife filed a complaint on them because in fact, in those situations, it's the doctors or the nurses that are doing these hostile transfers who are being negligent. Those are two things it's, you can do. God, it's so good. And my heart just warms. Like whenever I hear you talk, I'm like, oh God, it makes me so much happy. We are so alone. And like my PTSD is so real in this conversation. I've like, got, I've got my sweater on because I'm like feeling all like agitated. Yes. Yeah, I've got a perfect example of that. I had a woman with a retained placenta, normal birth center birth, eight pound baby, slid out in the water, happy as can be, an hour postpartum, all the things, placenta's not coming. We tried 20 more minutes of all the things, placenta's not coming. So we transported because that's the appropriate medically safe thing to do. And there she sat sitting in a waiting room chair in the ER for eight hours before a physician would see her. And then I got a complaint on my license. That is unfortunately all too typical, Augustine. So it's, typical. It's, hor- it's, a it's horrible. Example. It's negligence. Yeah. And that, that woman's baby could die because they're leaving her for eight hours. And then they turn around and they say, Augustine waited two hours and 25 minutes to transfer. What yeah. about, you know, because I agree with Hermine on filing more complaints against their license. What about the moms filing the, the complaint? Because then it's from a different perspective. It's you let me sit there for eight hours. Oh yeah. And if they can, they should. I, I feel like that. And I say attack it from both angles, but whatever people do, you know, I just had a call recently from a mother who was without getting into the details, literally forcibly sterilized in a hospital in Northwest Arkansas during a quote emergency cesarean tells me it wasn't much of an emergency if you're debating in the OR about whether or not she was supposed to have her 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 tubal where i'm going with that is if we can if more people are filing complaints i, I just and don't and don't do it that's where i was going and don't do it yourself so this this mother who is literally suffering from PTSD is just just grieving the situation, tried to do a complaint herself. And it was, look, if you can do it yourself, fine. But I feel like I could have helped her. And it was just mm-hmm. a little bit too late. Or a lot of times I'll hear a story and it's been, you know, it's just been too long. Um, Which is, of course, the symptom of PTSD because when you're suffering with PCSE, you can't go back to the site of the crime. You can't go back in your brain to what happened to even be able to rehash it to write the complaint. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like, and midwives are that way too. I mean, we basically have a nation of traumatized midwives from this front lines fight. And many of them don't have the wherewithal to defend themselves. I certainly didn't. At the end of 39 investigations and a Medicaid audit, you know, right at the end of my practice, um, because I was ruffling feathers being like, this is not okay. They decided to pass on the idea that maybe I had also not billed appropriately. So I got audited by Medicaid for $186,000, which was just the nail in the coffin for me. And I was like, and bankruptcy, uh, because there's just no, there's no way to come out of that. Certainly I had not fraudulently claimed $186,000. That's all the care I had provided. Uh, but they were saying that there wasn't a signature on every line. 
that that made it invalid. You know, it was all these little. You know, One more financial weapon that is used on midwives in the state of Oregon is yeah, the OHA exactly. audit. Put you through yeah. hell to get paid at all. File frivolous complaints on you for having tried to get paid. And then yeah. after squeaking out some money to you over a period of years, audit you, say that because you signed by hand all instead of, of on the blah, blah, you now own, owe them tens of thousands of dollars. All, all of it. Back. All of it back. All of it all back. Of it back. Even though yeah. you provided those services. And that, yeah, of course, totally. is enough to shut a midwife down and bankrupt her. Totally. Yeah. Take everything it they totally have. does. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a systemic, it's a weaponized system against those who don't play to pay, you know, in in the system. So 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 the moms can complain if they have the wherewithal. The midwives can complain if they have the wherewithal. Before anyone's in trauma, the mamas, the birthing people can say, midwife, what do you need? But what else? We have to come up with some other systemic level change to to halt this monopoly. I say use what's happening now. I mean, I don't want to get go down a rabbit hole, but I think use anything that's happening socially and currently to your advantage and frame the narrative in a way that works for you. Right now, we more than ever, we should know as a society that the hospital is not a safe place for a normal low-risk birth with what's going on. That should be common knowledge. That should be common knowledge. It should be. And we should be talking about it more. I feel like we should be using this as a tool to move more hospital births back into the community setting. But it takes a lot of organization and, and we have to, you know, rally together to do that in a very organized fashion. And I think that's where the medical monopoly and communities always has an advantage. There are more of them. They have more money. But I think we have to, on all levels in our society, use moments like this to institute some sort of change, albeit even a small change. Yeah. Yeah. I have a vision that midwives can come together and unionize. And I'm talking, you know, LDM, CPM, CNMs, everybody needs to come together. I've I know that Augustine and I have have never had any issues where I would think that, you know, a CPM wouldn't be able to do the things that a CNM could do. Um, But I think that that's that's really what's being taught in some of the CNM schools is that, um, you know, CPMs are not as good, that they don't have enough of a skill to provide the same type of care that CNMs do. And I would actually agree the opposite because CNMs do not get, you know, breach teaching, you know, there's- Or any community-based training unless they seek it out. Well, so actually, well, they're yeah, they're not the skilled in community. University is community based, and they they do allow midwives uh, midwife students to precept in uh, allow, but not require. Right, and they just came out and said we will not um, allow our nurse midwife students to precept in a center that offers VBACs now. It's so tragic. It's horrifying. Like, for, for real, yep. it just came out with this at Frontier Nurse, Nursing University, which is the school that I attended. And so you can see this whole movement that's happening. So if, if midwives everywhere and the whole nation, you know, decide to come together because we all have a common goal. And I'm not talking midwives. I'm talking out of hospital midwives. Who want yeah, we need a, well, we need a community-based midwifery lobbyist organization. They need a legal defense fund. <laughs> that's yeah. my two cents. And her meaning is our girl. I mean, come on, y'all have military organizations. We're going to form a new one. That's what the CPM is doing. There's two national CPM organizations. 
I, look, I represent the Oregon Association of Birth Centers. And in that role, I do everything I can at whatever, every time that they're at a seat at the table. And it's, it, but at the same time, we have all witnessed the, the way that scarcity prevents midwives from coming together, uh, agreeing on priorities. But it does happen sometimes. Right now in the state of New York, CNMs and CPMs yeah. are working together to working see together. CPMs licensed. But look, but what, like what else can we do? What we can do is every single time discrimination manifests, call it out and fight it. Every single time. Yeah. What else can, yeah. there's nothing else to do than that. There's no other thing. That's the thing. And we, we, we fight it together. We fight it individually. We fight it in every way that we can. I mean, yeah. 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 The, the other problem anymore yeah. that it's the norm. That well, it's like when you're when you're there, you're not. You're so far from there, obviously. <laughs> I know. You know what I mean? I like we're we're. I guess it's when this is fully integrated and an accessible healthcare choice. We'll we'll either get there or we won't, and we'll 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 do the whole baby from in utero through Harvard. We'll do it all in a pod. <laughs> we could absolutely move to the word of that place too, but. Um, yeah, yeah, my friend uh, Irene Garzon just publishing a book this week called The Womb Emptying Society, which outlines this exact phenomenon. Well, I, um, I'm so, I'm just overwhelmed with love for all three of you. I mean, my gosh, um, the, the one beautiful thing that came out of my my out witch hunt was that I got connected to all three of you. And I'm so, so grateful to be holding space for connection and support for those still in the fight on the front lines. So Becca, I just wanna say, I love your, your midwife heart. And, and it makes me teary to think of all the things that we suffered as a result of trying to make happen what didn't happen. And I'm glad that you found a way through. And I, I wish that you were still delivering babies and offering your genius in midwifery, but I know that you're offering it in some way. So thank you. Thank you for your service. Hermine, thank you so much. Your service heart, your mentor heart, your your just your ability to see the big picture and name the truths um, are literally Sister, changing the world. It's a pleasure and an honor to work with you. Likewise, my friend. And Keisha, yeah. my dear, off we go. More of these still to do. Thank you so much That's for right. everything you're doing to advocate. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Keep for doing it up, ladies. Things.